0: Thank you, John. multi Wins the 200 and wins the harmonica contest, too. What can I tell you? Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, we're going to officially enter into 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, For those of you that are visiting uh, our church today, just so you understand kind of where we're at as a church, it might help you put things together a little bit better today. Uh, we realized that uh, the ministry is people. And the only reason God saved us was to uh, uh, and gave us churches was to learn how to help people and, and uh, help others through the struggles of life and as God has gets us and gives us the victory through our struggles. And uh, so that's what really we're all about. And in the process of that, you know, uh, our church has been here now, I think it'll be 10 years this year, and we have been working uh, almost every year on bringing it up to another level. And we've got a tremendous uh, uh, opportunities that God gives us, and uh, a great bunch of people who understand that concept that the ministry is people. So we have been working over the last four or five years, uh, really taking and fine-tuning uh, ourselves to, uh, to people in the ministry. And uh, last year, probably it was, I think it was maybe a year and a half ago, uh, I, I told them that there's no greater book in the Bible that teaches us how to minister than the book of Second Corinthians. The book of Second Corinthians, without a doubt, is the handbook of ministry for us. And it's a great book because it follows 1 Corinthians. And, you know, most people look at the books in the Bible and they don't understand that each book has a particular reason for being where it's at and what it brings to us. In the church at Corinth was a church that had a lot of struggles. And uh, they had a lot of issues. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, basically what Paul does, chapter by chapter, he goes through and he tries to, to help this church. He had started this church sometime before. They got off on the good foot, but then they got off on the wrong foot a little bit later on. A lot of things have crept in. A lot of people were growing up and they weren't uh, spiritually mature. And the church had degenerated into a. Well, Paul says to a church of spiritual babies. In 1 Corinthians, he goes through and lays out chapter by chapter every problem that they have and sometimes multiple issues that they struggle with. And at some place in the process, the majority of the church wants to do what's right. So then he writes the book of 2 Corinthians to them, and in the book of 2 Corinthians, this is where now he begins to teach them how to minister. Where the first book taught them and showed us what was wrong with it and the things not to do, the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter by chapter, he shows us how uh, to minister, and every chapter is a different aspect of the ministry. We've seen all kinds of things about it, and we've laid it all out. Last week, we I gave you the introduction to uh, uh, chapter 10. We didn't get into it, but I wanted to kind of give you the introduction of chapter 10, because chapter 10 deals with the mind of the minister. And, you know, I, I told you last week, and I gave you a great example in Second Kings chapter 4, uh, of how that we are to, uh, uh, you know, we are, Second Kings chapter 4, how we are to, uh, uh, to understand how people think. One of the keys of being successful in working with people is understanding why people think the way they think. One of the real keys of uh, being effective in helping people get their lives turned around is understanding uh, why people do what they do. I, I think the, the biggest struggle that we all have when you start to work with people is, is to understand uh, and, and realize why people see things the way that they do. You know, you have two people that have a different opinion about something. One of them is obviously right, and one of them is obviously wrong. And you find that in working with people. This is the beauty of the Operation Turnaround, where <clears throat> so many of you are going to get a chance now <clears throat> to actually use everything that we talk about. And you're going to see this. And, and some of you will excel to it to the point that it'll really uh, fine-tune you and make you because you'll come away understanding why people do the things that they do, why people say what they say, and why they look at things in life and they see it the way uh, that they see it. And today, we'll start uh, to look at this uh, book, and it really lays out the real battle. And you know, we talk about life's battles, life struggles, and all of those things, but in reality... The real battle of life that we all face is the battle for our mind, what we think about. We talked about that last week. In fact, uh, I I, I showed you how that, uh, though every chapter is key in this book, the last three chapters have been very important. Chapters in 8 and 9 showed us the heart of the minister. We got a real understanding of where our heart should be, and now we see the mind of the minister. And you remember last week I, I gave you 10 great principles that I told you to write down. Uh, I, I, I kind of weave the whole sermon around these 10 things because when you start to look at yourself first, and that's where it all starts, you can't help somebody else till you get your own self where you need to be. But when you take these 10 principles and you put them into your own life first and you understand how they affect you, and you get them to work for you, then you're going to be in a much better position to help somebody else. And I, I brought them through, and I'll, I'll go through them again just for the people that are visitors here so they have some continuity, but uh, there's, I, I gave those to them because there's a reason. We're going we're to use them as we start to come through this chapter. So number one was uh, I talked about how that we are simply what we think about. What we think about is what we are. And I gave you two great verses. That is the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks over there in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So we learn that we are what we think about. We also learn the second thing I gave you, that the heart of of the minister, the, the, the heart that you have, the attitude of heart that you have will always produce the mind of the minister. We are what we think about. And I gave you the third one, one of the greatest principles that you'll ever have in your own personal life and you'll use in everything that you do in ministry, and that is attitude versus action. That's based on your pattern of thought, and it's one of the greatest Bible principles that you ever have. And I showed you how it worked. The fourth thing was wrong patterns of thought will always produce the wrong attitude. And when the wrong pattern of thought produces the wrong attitude in time, the attitude will always produce the wrong action. It just follows that basic pattern. Number five, we talked about strongholds. And this is really what chapter 10 really gets to. We just talked about it to give you some aspects, but we talked about strongholds in our life. And I define them as (coughs) strongholds or defensive positions. When we don't want to do what's right, When you see it in your kids, you get that look from them. You know what you just told them to do is not going over well. That's because they now have built a defensive position. What you told them to do was the right thing. What they were doing was the wrong thing. But because they don't want to do the right thing and they want to continue doing the wrong thing, now we call it a wall goes up, you know. Uh, they got a wall up. You know, they put a wall up. You can't get in. That means that's a defensive position. That's a that's a stronghold in your life. That's something that you don't want to give up. That uh, you want to hang on to. And then foolishly, and well, you see this all the time in the ministry. You see people who are absolutely standing for something that is ridiculous. That anybody with a IQ above subplant life would know that is not in. A, should be in a Christian's life, but yet they defend it. To the point where it's almost ridiculous. Why? Because it's a stronghold, and a stronghold, as I showed you, number five, is a defensive position. I told you this is number six. I gave you the great principle that you cannot fix problems in your life with the same thinking that caused those problems. It goes back to the thought patterns. There's something that has to change about the way you think, which produces how you uh, how you act and the actions that you have in your life. Number seven, I talked about how that. And how many times have you all seen this? When you change, you know, you deal with people, you try to help people, and they'll change their action, but they'll never change their attitude. And I told you last week that change of action is always temporary. It, it's never lasting. Change of attitude is what it takes to change something permanently. And that's what we talked about. Number eight, the one we lost last week that we couldn't find in the midst of all what we were doing, Uh, You can't make unspiritual people spiritual by uh, putting good people in their lives. Uh, And this is a fallacy that many people fall into. I got a worthless son. I got a worthless daughter. So put people of worth in their life and it's going to change them. No, 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 no. You can't change somebody from being what they want to be. They have to change their attitude before you can change their action, and at that point, then yeah, you put good people with them. The other point of that is, is you never give uh, unspiritual people spiritual things to do to make them think that that's going to make them spiritual, and that just doesn't work either. Uh, there's a there's a process, and I I'll give you some good advice: <coughs> stay out of other people's strongholds. If you know somebody's not doing what the Bible says, it's good advice just to stay out of it. Don't get involved in it because, obviously, when you get in somebody's stronghold and you become part of that, there's going to be some issues. Number nine, uh, I told you that the job of every Christian is to get God's thoughts, God's opinion on everything in life. That's what the Bible's all about. And then you make that opinion, that God's opinion, your opinion. Now, that's a process. That doesn't happen overnight. That goes through some things that you have to work with in your life that you have to do. It takes some time to do that, but that ought to be the goal of every Christian uh, on this planet. Once you get saved, uh, you're you're saved from the world. Why would you get saved from the world but still want to think like the world? And that's the problem. And then number 10, a basic little thing that you hear me say a thousand times uh, to you, and that is as uh, Christians— Looking at the world, looking at the life we live and all the things around us uh, with the Bible that God gives us, we just need to be smarter than the problems. The Bible is the book that God gives us that allows us to be smarter than the situations that we face in life. I tell you all the time, many times in your life and my life, you are not responsible for the bad things that happen to you in life. There will be things that happen in your life that you have no control over. A lot of things that happen bad in your life, you caused. But let's be honest, there's a lot of things in life that will happen to you that will befall you in life you had nothing to do with. You are not responsible always for the bad things that happen in your life, but you are responsible for how you deal with them. And that comes back to being smarter than the issue, smarter than uh, the problem. Then I gave you three, if you remember, three great uh, principles of the Christian life that I think that are invaluable. And uh, I use them all the time. First one, is we talked about, and we all agreed that God does have standards of holiness. There has to be some, some, some things that we do as Christians and some things that we don't do as Christians. We all came to that agreement. And then the second thing I gave you was when you start to look at a situation, you, you break it down to the lowest common denominator. Get it down that you're not caught up in the symptom of the problem, but you really, truly understand what the problem is. That's very important. Then I think I gave you (laughs) one of the greatest things that you'll ever have, and that is the story of what do you get when you squeeze a lemon. You will use that every day of your life. It's the answer to why people who appear to be God's people, who appear to be Christian, when something befalls them in their life or something comes into their life and they, they fall apart or they don't follow through or they give up and quit. Many times over the years in those scenarios, people have asked me, why, why, why does so-and-so do this? Why do they do that? I thought they were leaders. I thought they were this. I thought they were that. They, they, they've taught the Bible before. They've discipled. Why do people do those things? And it comes back to the lemon story. And I, uh, just to give you a, a brief illustration on it, i tell you what I said last week. I, I, I asked them, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? And everybody thinks you get lemon juice. But the truth of the matter is, I told him of a story down in the South a number of years ago where some guy was going into the uh, supermarket and injecting with a needle uh, in the lemons or some kind of poison, and the people were buying the lemons, taking them home and making lemon juice, and 30 or 40 people died. So the guy the preaching picked up on it, and he says, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? And we all say lemon juice, but he says that's not true. What you get when you squeeze a lemon is really what's on the inside. And you see, what do you get when you squeeze a Christian? What you get is what's really on the inside. And I told you, the mark of you and me as a Christian, the strength of you and I, our testimony as a Christian, it's not when everything goes good in our life. It's when everything falls apart in our life. It's when you're squeezed. It's when I'm squeezed. And when a Christian gets squeezed, what's really on the inside is what comes out. (laughs) That answers. So many questions. So, with that intro I gave you last week, we're going to today begin to examine this great chapter, and it is a truly a great chapter, that deals with the greatest battle that you're ever going to fight, and that is the battle for your mind. So, I want to begin reading uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll pick it up in the first five verses here today. And we're going to continue on with why people do what they do, why people say the things that they say and how people, why they think the way that they do. And maybe this will give you some better understanding. Now, here's what he said. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I, Paul, myself, beseech uh, you by the mercies and the gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh." For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. There it is. We're going to talk about that in here a little bit. Casting down imagination and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought through the obedience of Christ. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you today for the word of God that you've given us. Thank you, Father, that Uh, that you didn't leave us uh, in this life without a guide, uh, which shows us uh, what you think about everything in life, the Word of God. And we pray today, Father, that uh, as these people sit here, and uh, I don't know all of them, I know a lot of them, but I I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I believe that they're good people, and I believe that they're here today because they are good people. And I believe that deep down inside them, they all want to do what's right. They may not understand it all. They may struggle with some things in their life, but we all struggle. But I pray, Father, that your spirit today would take this. I, I don't want to preach this message today. I, I wanna I want to talk to them. I want to try to, like I did last week, I want to try to help them to see and understand how vitally important this battle is. And many of them are losing the battle. Many of them have got the victory in the battle, but we need to understand this battle today. And then we'll thank you and praise you now in Jesus' name for our sake we ask it. Amen. Now the first thing I want you to see here and For you people who are in your Bibles here, you probably need to make this note in here because it'll come up at some point. I want to draw your attention to verse (coughs) 3. He says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Now, that verse needs a little clarification here because uh, if you remember back when we taught the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8 in particular, Romans chapter 8 clearly says that we as Christians cannot walk in the flesh. We can't. We can't walk in the flesh uh, as Christians. Now, an unsaved man walks in the flesh, but a Christian cannot walk in the flesh. Yet Paul says here in his passage that we can. And you can see how if somebody didn't really understand the Bible, they'd read Romans 8, and then they'd read this, and they'd get confused on it. But, but it, uh, here's what he's talking about. In Romans chapter 8, Paul's talking about the spiritual body of the believer. And he's talking about how in Romans chapter 8, we've been separated from the flesh through salvation, and now we're in a spiritual uh, body. And when you look at the body, soul, and spirit and, and understand what took place the day a person gets saved, in that sense, a child of God has been separated from his flesh. So spiritually speaking, he cannot walk in the flesh. Now, he can walk after the flesh, but he can't walk in the flesh because he's been separated from the flesh. Now, here in this chapter uh, 10 of, of uh, verse 3, he's not talking about our spiritual body. you got to see the difference. In Romans 8, when he says that we can't walk in the flesh, he's talking about in a spiritual sense. not talking about a spiritual sense here. He's talking about our physical body. Geographically, I'm still in the flesh. Look at it this way. Your flesh is like a dead corpse like a dead body before you were saved you were stuck to that dead body your flesh the moment God saved you he separated you from that flesh and now you're a new creature in Christ Jesus where before salvation you're stuck to it after salvation you're just stuck with it you got to deal with it every day it's there all the time And God saved you. He separated from you. So verse 3 simply says, I'm geographically and physically still in my physical body, my flesh. But then the point he's trying to make, in spite of that, my my battle I fight is not a physical battle. I may be geographically still in this physical body, but the battle I fight is not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. And that's the point he's trying to make. And he says in verse 4, the next verse, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, there's the flesh, but mighty through God. Now, these weapons are found over in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. If you come down through that great passage, that's the great passage on the armor of God. And there again, he says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Then he says, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And what follows in that chapter is seven pieces of armor. We've talked about it many times. You can go on the website and you can get the study we did on it a number of times. But he says over there that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. And so when you go to Ephesians, you find out what that weaponry is. He talks about, first of all, loins girt about with truth in Ephesians. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness. He talks about having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He talks about the shield of faith. He talks about the helmet of salvation. He talks about the sword of the spirit. And then he talks about praying always with all prayer and supplication. You see, these are the weapons that he's talking about in verse 4. And uh, uh, so in this chapter, as we start to come through it, what we just read, we see it's about strongholds in our lives. Now, a stronghold is simply what the word says. It's something that has a strong hold on you. That's what it does. And yet, if you take it through the Bible and you would examine it, you'll find that uh, even though that strongholds are your defensive position uh, you build in your life when you refuse to surrender to God, it becomes your holdout, your hideout. Strongholds come in two different flavors when you look at them through the Bible. You have the fleshy strongholds. That's just being part of the world. And that would be somebody who gets uh, prideful about things, uh, somebody that gets sin in their life about, you know, something that's worldly. That's where uh, you can find it, you can take and put Uh, sports in your life, where you can put uh, uh, your job in your life, Uh, it it doesn't matter. It's just things that you put in your life that go contrary when they get out of, and many of them aren't bad, but you get them out of priority, out of whack, and then they become a stronghold. Instead of going to church on Sunday morning, instead of going to Bible study on Thursday night, you go play basketball, or you go do this, or you go do that. Those things take the place of where God uh, wants to be in your life. Then the second one is what we call satanic strongholds. They're much more complicated. Uh, That would be addictions. That would be uh, sexual perversion. That would be the things that are not the natural things, that are unnatural things, That'll be when you deal with somebody with drug addiction or alcohol uh, abuse or, uh, you know, someone who gets to the point where uh, they're into the uh, into the dark sexual side of things, pedophiles, you know, necromancing and uh, bestiality and all the things of perversion that go along with it that are not natural. They're not the garden variety everyday sins you deal with. They're satanic in their nature, and brother, they really get a hold on you, and of course, if you've ever tried to deal with somebody that's an alcoholic, if you've ever tried to deal with somebody that's a hardline drug addict, it's a hard thing to to, to get away. Uh, you deal with someone who's been involved in pedophilia or betting, uh, uh, molesting children, the, the, the unsaved experts will tell you that that's something that a man or a woman probably never gets out of their life because it's a stronghold. It's a stronghold. And... Uh, Uh, This chapter defines it it for us. This chapter is about pulling down strongholds. And you're going to find that we'll talk about it in a minute that there's two different aspects of these strongholds that we want to look at. But this chapter is about pulling them down. And I like that phrase, nice choice of words. Because when you put a stronghold in your life, here's basically what we do. We talked about this Thursday night when somebody asked about grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Your heart is like a throne, and a king wants to sit on a throne. God wants to be that king that sits on that throne of your heart. When you and I, when we put, allow, or build a stronghold in your life, what we simply do is take God off that throne and put something else on. And it can be anything. It could be something as minute as, as I said earlier, sports. It could be something as easy as your job. You all got to have one, but it can become an obsession in your life where uh, your career and making money override whatever God wants you to do. It can be your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It could be the desire to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. On the other side, you can get to the place where you know, uh, instead of God sitting on that throne of your life and getting, uh, you know, getting uh, stronger every day, whatever you put on your life gets stronger every day. That's why teenagers start out smoking cigarettes, wind up doing crack. That's why they start out drinking a beer, hiding it, and wind up being an alcoholic. Strongholds get stronger every day. They don't. They don't go away out of your life. When you put whatever you are put on the throne of your heart, that is what's going to get stronger every day. When you put God on the throne of your life, then you're going to become stronger for him every day. When you put something else on the throne of your life, it's going to become stronger every day. People with strongholds get worse. They don't get better. They simply don't. The stronghold sits on the throne, and it gets stronger every day. And that stronghold needs to be, as the Bible says, pulled down. I love that choice of word. When I read that, my mind goes back to the uh, Gulf War when we we, we went over there and fought uh, Saddam Hussein and his crowd back in uh, 2003. And if you remember, if you remember, after we took Baghdad, after the war was over, Saddam Hussein had set himself up as a god. He loved Adolf Hitler. He worshipped Nimrod. In fact, in the Bible, Babylon, where Nimrod was, is Baghdad. He thought he was Nimrod reincarnated, and uh, and and so he, he he presented himself as as all dictators, like some kind of god. And whenever you went through it, you saw gigantic pictures of Saddam Hussein in the square there, in the middle of the city. They had that. Humongous statue of him standing up there, looking like a real leader, looking defiant, like he was going to lead the people. Strong, courageous. I mean, it must have been forty foot tall on a big high pedestal. After the war was over, one of the news agencies took the film and the picture. How that the people that really hated him once they they were free. You know what they did? The picture was was, was beautiful. It showed his statue up there with about thirty ropes around his neck. And tied to bumpers of cars and people pulling on them. You know what they did? They they pulled that statue right off that pedestal. I've thought to myself many, many times that's what we need to do with strongholds. You put a rope around a sucker's neck and you pull it off the throne. You get it off there and put Christ back on it. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we're not going to get into it today, but in 2 Samuel chapter 5, just to kind of show you understand this, that whole chapter is dedicated. In a life of story of David taking Jerusalem, of five things that you do to get a stronghold out of your life. It's a tremendous chapter, but strongholds need to be pulled down. Now, when we look at strongholds in our lives, we're going to forget the, the the deep dark satanic one because uh, uh, we're, most of you don't have a problem with that. The people, two people, that do didn't come today, so we're okay with them. I'm just kidding. Oh, you just came in. in He's sitting on the left over there. No, I'm just kidding. I always do that. But I want to focus on the one we all struggle with the most. And there's two aspects to that in the passage, and you can read it. The first one is imagination. And the second one is every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And uh, when you exalt something in our lives over God, it becomes a stronghold. Now, let's look at these for a moment and And let's get some light on it from the Bible. Let's talk about imagination first. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the first time the word imagination shows up in the Bible, it shows up in Genesis chapter 6. And it shows up in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, with a man named Noah. Now, remember that in Noah's time, the world was totally against God. Even though they had a religious error about them and they talked about God, in truth, they denied every truth about God. They're a very religious society, but they're not God's religion. They're their own religion. And God says in verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And here it comes. And that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. See that thing? Now, that's a stronghold. And and truth of the matter is, that's a picture right there. That is a picture of modern-day America right there. That's exactly what it is. God looked down and he saw a world where that the imagination of every man outside of Noah and his family was against God. Now, the next time you find it, it's in Genesis chapter 11, just a couple of chapters over. And this will be the Tower of Babel. Now, Babel is Babylon. Babylon means confusion. And this is where they, God changed the language in so they don't talk one language anymore. They all babble. <laughs> so it's Tower of Babel. And in Genesis chapter 11, verse 6, it says this, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and all have one language, and and this they begin to do, building the tower. And here's what he says. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. You see, it was the imagination. It's where it starts. Sin always starts in the mind and goes to the heart and then produces an attitude and then comes out on the other side as an action. And the first thing he says that is a stronghold in people's lives is an imagination. And when we start coming through the Bible, we don't find it in a good sense. Once Israel gets started a little bit later on, you're going to find through the book of Jeremiah, eight times in the book of Jeremiah, he uses the phrase about the nation of Israel after their imagination of their evil heart. And then you go to the end of Israel. Turn with me in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 8. I want to show you a great Great, great picture of our imagination. And I want you to better understand why this is such a problem. Now, Ezekiel is the book of the captivity. You remember from our, our New Year's Eve study in 721, Sennacherib comes down and takes the northern tribes uh, from Assyria into captivity. A little bit later on in around 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes down and takes the two southern tribes, and and Ezekiel writes uh, during the southern captivity. He goes down there uh, during that Babylonian captivity. And he writes this in Ezekiel chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 5. Now watch this. This is incredible stuff. If If you're in a people ministry or you work with people, you need to get this to see this. Then said he unto me, Son of man, Lift up thine eyes now away toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes the way toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. And he said, Furthermore unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abomination that the house of Israel committed here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary? But turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. Now mark that right there. He just showed them all the terrible things that they're doing, and then he says, hang on, I want to show you some worse things they're doing. Verse 7, paragraph mark. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping thing abominable beast, all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. There stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel, and in the midst of them stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, and every man his censer in his hand with a thick cloud of incense went up. Now here it comes. Then said he unto me, Son of man, thou hast seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say, the Lord seeth not, the Lord hath forsaken the earth. That's a picture of our minds. Those images portrayed across the wall in a dark room that nobody sees, that's what we think about. And I wanted you to see that. He said the wicked things that they do outwardly, and then he says, I'm going to show you some really wicked things. And you know what that That proves? It proves that what we have on the inside of our imagination is much worse than what we see on the outside of what somebody does. That's a great principle. That's an incredible principle. And verse 10 and 12 says, the image is portrayed on a wall in a dark room, the beast, the idolatry, the abominable things. Verse 12 says, this whole story is a picture of what Israel's imagination is. And then it talks about it talk, the chambers of their imagery. And then it talks, see this verse 11, every man with a censer in his hand. He talks about Jezaniah and Shephan. And the 70 elders of Israel, you know who they were? Mark in your Bible, Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, and Exodus chapter 20, verse verse 11. Those are the guys that Moses left at the bottom of the mountain when he went up to get the law back in Exodus. And while he was gone, they took and made the golden calf and let all Israel go a-whoring after the other gods. That's who they are. They're the religious leaders of Israel. What a mess this thing is. And you know where it starts? You know where the biggest mess you have right now this morning? Our imagination. Our imagination. Our, your imagination. What you think about is what you are. And your imagination will always lead you into trouble. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Six things that God hates. What's number four? Number four is is a heart that devises wicked imaginations. That's number four. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, a famous verse whosoever looketh after a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery in his heart. I know what the verse says. I know the principle applies. But let me shake it one step further. You know why that verse says what it says? And I know what everybody says. If you look after a woman and you lust after her, you committed adultery in his heart. But it goes farther than that. It's based on the principle of attitude and action. What he's saying there is if you think about committing adultery long enough and what it'll be like, your mind will go there and your body will follow and you'll do it after a period of time. That's what He's saying, Hey, come on, come on, get honest this morning. We all take our minds places we would never think of taking our bodies. Imagination. Imagine that, imagination. Now the second thing here. And every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Now look at that, the knowledge of God. That's not knowledge about God. That's God's knowledge. That's his mind. That's the word of God. That's Philippians 2.5 that I gave you last week and 1 Corinthians 2.15. That's the Bible itself. And when we put education or science or philosophy or your will or something that you want to do, it can be many things over God's mind becomes a stronghold. Now, let me say this. I've, I've dealt with people for 40 years. I've made people my life study I have to because I can't give them bad advice. I've worked my whole life of understanding why people do what they do, say what they say, and think the way they think. I've watched every pattern of human nature, cataloged it, and I'll give it to some of you in time as we uh, come through and learning about people. But I, I want you to understand this today. People, you want to understand people? Here it comes. People who allow strongholds in their lives are basically weak people. They're weak people. That's their pattern. They're weak to the point that they never can be a leader, but they're always a follower. They will decide they're going to do something on Tuesday, and somebody will talk them out of it by Wednesday. They go with whatever the flow is. They're weak. They're weak to the point that they cannot build anything in their life that's worth anything for God and when they get out of fellowship with God, the best thing they can build is the worst thing they build is strongholds. They always change only the action because they're weak and they're too weak to really address the problem, which is their attitude. They're like a little lizard I had a long time ago. I remember this like it was yesterday. F.W. Woolworths, downtown Canton, Ohio. They had these little lizards for sale for 50 cents, and my mom bought me one. My dad made a nice cage about that high, had a door on it. He went out and cut a tree limb off and put it, stuck it in the middle so the lizard would have something to climb on, you know, and I'd go out and catch flies and and, and put them down on the top, and I'd be fascinated, and there's two things that fascinated me as a kid growing up. One of them was that lizard because he would sit there, and that fly would come, and I'd put ham, raw hamburger down and draw the fly down on the hamburger, and he he just sit there and boom, and he was so fast. And they'd make a little snapping sound when he got those flies. My second thing in life, and this is the reason why I am who I am. This has caused social scars on me forever, but I used to love to watch those electric bug lights. You get the little ones that just go in and they're gone. But then you get a big one in there. And that sucker will fry for two or three seconds. I mean, I love to go to sleep and have my window open with a sound of bugs frying out there in the yard. It's I know, I know. It's me. You know what? You got your problems, I got mine. <laughs> but so many of God's people remind me of that little lizard. It was a chameleon. That's what the name of it was. I had to go around a circle a couple of times remember the name of it. You know what a chameleon does? That little lizard had the ability to change colors. I mean, you want to go out and hunt deer or turkey or whatever, you got to put on a camouflage suit. He just thinks green, and he turns green. He thinks brown, and he turns brown. When he would be on the branch of the tree, he'd be brown. He'd go up and get into the leaves, he'd turn green. In other words, that little sucker could change colors with whatever the circumstances was. And I look at a lot of God's people, and I think, just like my little lizard, you change with whatever way the wind's blowing. Well, whatever is the, whatever's leading today is what you follow. Uh, you, you, I mean, uh, it, it, it's incredible. I mean, you're, you're, the, you're, you're weak. If, if, if brains was gunpowder, you wouldn't have enough to blow your nose. I, I mean, you, you, you follow everything. You follow everybody. And I've always thought of that when I look at some Christians about that little lizard. That little lizard, I should would just, I'm not even going to tell you. No, no. When that little lizard died, my life was over. And I was just a little guy. But I put that little lizard in a in a little a little matchbox that slid open, and I I, I couldn't afford I, I, of course, I couldn't I couldn't deal with the fact of I, I put him in the garage, and every once in a while I had that lizard in there till I went almost I found him before I went into the army when I was cleaning some stuff up, and he was all shriveled up, but he was in that little matchbox. I loved that little lizard. That's probably more information that you needed on the lizards today, but. <laughs> Confession is good for the soul. I feel a lot better now after telling that story. I've had psychologists on their couch try to get that story out of me, and I'd never tell them. Now, in all of this, some of you someday are going to make good preachers. Some of you are going to make good pastors. You really are. I see it in you. So I want to tell you this. In all of what we're talking about, here's the job of a pastor. It's a nasty job. Maybe you'll appreciate me a little more when you see what horrific situation God has put me in with you. <laughs> I mean, I've heard over the last four or five years so many times people who get into sin in their life and are always blaming it on somebody else. I, I, it's incredible. I mean, it'll be, well, so-and-so does it, so I'm doing it, so that. So if you want to know what's wrong with me this morning, and I, we, I, I'm not... I'm not this ogre that you think I am this morning standing up here. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm mellow today. <laughs> Normally, and I, always, I always know who sits on the front row because I know, and I always tell them ahead of time uh, to wear a raincoat because when I get going, I can spit on the front row real easy. But I, I told them, no raincoats today. I'm not spitting today. But I'm going to tell you, I, am the way, I, I, I learned, I learned. I've seen everybody else blame the way they are on everybody else. So I'm the way I am because of you. Your sin makes me the way I am. Makes me crazy. It isn't me. This isn't the real me. Ask my wife. Ask my kids. Come over and talk to my dog. Their birthday was this week. One year old. We had a party all day on Wednesday. We sang songs. I gave them treats. It was a wonderful day. I'm sure if you were a psychologist this morning and you dig down in my past, there would be a connection between my dog's Out, little lizard. (laughs) Now, here's my job turn over to Jeremiah chapter 1. You got to see this in the context of what we're talking about. I mean, this is a terrible situation I find myself in. But I look at you and I see some of you are going to make great preachers. Some of you are already great preachers. Some of you already are, I would think, would, uh, would be good pastors. You have, would have what, I, what, what I think you look for. But I'm telling you, this is the test right here. Now, Jeremiah chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 4. Here's what he says Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, O Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put His hand, uh, put forth his hand and touched my mouth. Uh, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, to this day, I uh, set thee over nations, to over kingdoms, to root out, and to pull down, and to destroy, and to throw down, and to build, and to plant. Now, that's, that's, that's the job. But the th- I want to break this thing down in two things, because I want you to see this. Uh, first of all, understand who Jeremiah was. Jeremiah, uh, God sent him to Israel. And God sent him to Israel because Israel had ceased to do what God wanted them to do. So he sends prophets, Jeremiah is just one of them. He sends prophets down there, and those prophets are are really let them have it. The prophets are God's prophets to a people who have have turned their back to God and built a stronghold in their life. Now, when you go over to Jeremiah chapter 17, here's where the connection comes in. Jeremiah 17, 16, he clearly tells you that Jeremiah is their pastor. So all the connections are here. God sent. God sent Jeremiah to his people who had turned their back on God and got away from God, and God takes you as a pastor and or a preacher and sends you to his people in the New Testament who have turned their back against God. See how it works? I mean, it's simple. It's really easy. It's really easy. It really is. And Israel had put a stronghold in their life. Many people today put strongholds in their life. Now, I'm going to give you the rules of being a pastor. I'm going to give you the rules of being a pastor, and you want to get these down. If you're not going to be a pastor, then don't worry about it. But if you're going to be, then get them down. First of all, he says this, verse 6. Recognize as a pastor or a preacher, you got nothing to say. My opinion about things in life is just as worthless as yours. The only thing i got to say to you is what God wants me to say to you. I have convictions about things. There's things that I won't do, places I won't go. I never preach those convictions. You know why? Because they're my convictions. And a lot of pastors will get up and try to enforce their convictions on other people. I never do that. Those are my opinion based on my relationship with God. you got to form your own convictions. But what I will do is preach to you the Word of God that God gave me. I'll leave my personal Anecdotes out of it my personal opinion on it doesn't matter it's just as worthless as yours so the first thing you want to recognize in the first rule of pastoring or preaching is we got nothing to say unless god gives you what he wants you to say and a lot of pastors get caught up in that a lot of pastors every sunday morning they keep on talking long after there's nothing left to be said and that's the way it works the second thing this is verse seven you preach where god commands you to go and you say what he commanded you to say. No, I was born and raised in Ohio. And I and God commanded me to come to Kansas City over 30 some years ago. And I came here 30 some years ago because that's where God told me to come. I obeyed him in that and 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 my job or your job our job is to say what he commands you to say. Now, uh, this Bible here, this is not the normally one but Joe's been stealing all my sermons out of my old preaching Bibles. This is the Bible that I really don't use anymore. And uh, you can see it scarred, and beat the pieces. When I was on a preaching circuit years ago, preaching revivals and going around the world, around the country, uh, this was my, my deal. And I wanted to keep myself honest. And my favorite verse in the Bible on preaching is First Kings 22, 14. And verse King twenty two fourteen 14 says, As the Lord liveth what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. And I I had that embossed on the front of my Bible because I wanted to make sure that wherever I went and wherever I got an opportunity to preach, that I gave them what God gave me. Now, the story about that, and I think it's worth taking a quick look at here, the story about that is back here in 1 Kings 22, and it's a great story and one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And it's a story where uh, Micaiah is the prophet, just like Jeremiah was. And Micaiah lives in a time when Ahab, who was the wickedest king that ever lived, Ahab uh, hated, hated him. And what Ahab has done is what we all do. Ahab wanted nothing to do with God. This is an incredible story. It is such a great parallel to so many of our lives. Ahab wanted nothing to do with God, but he wanted to pretend he was religious. So you know what he did? He got him 400 prophets that he surrounded him, that would tell him what he wanted to hear. Just like so many of us want to do something, God's word says that's not what to do. So we go around and take the popular opinion poll. We look for some sign in the sky that this is what God wants us to do when God has clearly told us this is not what he wants us to do. And this is what Ahab Ahab does. But it's hilarious because it says down here, Uh, After he gets the 400 men in verse 6, and he says, should we go up to this battle? All 400 of them, all 400 of them says, oh, yes, king, go up to the battle. The Lord's with you. The Lord's with you. All 400 of them. After he leaves that meeting, he comes over and he says to Jehoshaphat, he says, is there yet anybody else who uh, will tell me? And, And Jehoshaphat says, uh, yeah, there's one uh, There's one guy left. And he says, oh, yeah, his name is Micaiah. And he said, that's right. And he he busts out in that verse. He says, and I hate him. Why? Because he prophesied no good thing concerning me. So they call Micaiah. And when they call Micaiah in, the people before he goes in to Ahab, they says, now look. Oh, and have I ever been in these situations? Now look. You're going to go in and tell him what the Bible says. Don't tell him anything negative. He wants to hear it's okay to go down. 400 other people have said it's okay. Come along. Get on the band. Be part of us. We're all kumbaya. Let's all hold hands. Get the weenies and the marshmallows. It's kumbaya anyway. And he Come on in there. And and so you know what Micaiah does? He goes in. He plays the game. He goes in and Ahab says, well, should I go to battle or should I not? And Ahab says, no, king, you go up to battle. God's with you. Praise the Lord. It's going to be a great time. You know what Ahab says? And this is great. Ahab looks and he says, I told you. I told you. I told you you wouldn't tell me the truth. Ahab already knew it was wrong to do it. He had 400 people that sided with him, and when Micaiah came in and told him what the other 400 told him, he gets mad at Micaiah because he knows Micaiah didn't tell him what the truth is. And then my favorite verse, Whoa. First 1 Kings twenty two fourteen. And Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. You know what? You got to go where God calls you to go, and you got to say what God tells you to say. And I'll tell you what, you're going to find people all your life that put pressure or they'll, they'll come to the point where they'll, have, they'll, be, they'll be so focused on what they want to do and where they want to go. And you know what happened in this book? You know what happens when God tells you in the Word what not to do and then you go ahead and finagle to do it anyhow? You know what happens at the end of the book? And I don't have time to go all the way through it. You know what he got? He got a lying spirit. Ahab got a lying spirit. A lot of Christians walk around with a lying spirit. When God tells you what is right to do, and then you go ahead and do your own thing and try to justify it, you know why you're dying it? you got a lying spirit from the Lord. The pastor's job, you go where God has called you to go, and you preach what God has given you to preach. That's what you do. He says in verse uh, in verse 8, I love this one, don't be afraid of their faces. In the ministry, as being a pastor, people will try to intimidate you all my life. I went to place preaches. I, I, I went to I went to some place to preach, and some old lady, a uh, lady, come up to me before I preach, and she knew my my stand on the Bible, and she'd come up to me, and she said, "We're so glad you're here, Brother Alexander. We're just so glad you're here. But you know what? We're all get along here. We all love the Lord, and we're all just one, you know, one body, and we're all one big family. And there's no use to divide anything. So I hope your message today won't be a dividing message. I know what she's saying. You know what I preach when I get in that pulpit. Whatever I had, I throw out, and I'll preach the message that'll divide. that just told me that that's what they need. You pick the wrong guy to try to intimidate. I've had people, I mean, I'm a nice guy and I'm a fair guy, but some things just make me crazy. (laughs) I've had people come into churches all my life and and try to intimidate, uh, try to take over and run the church. I've had women come in and try to think they're going to run the church. They don't stay around very long. I mean, there may be some, you may push your husband around and lead him around with a dog collar, but it'll be different when you come here. I'm not intimidated easily. You know why? I'm not afraid of the faces. You know what my problem is? My problem is simple. I'm much more terrified of God than I am of you. My problem. Right after New Year's Eve, I laid out all the things. Every year, I try to show you where we're going and where we've come from in the church, and I try to lay it out. I try to show you how we started back here, my plan, my goal. I want you to long for the ride. I want you to know and understand how it works. So I bring you in almost every year. And I, we talk. Take one whole Sunday, and we we talk about it. And I bring you up the speed. And I showed you how that a while back, five or six years ago, we 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 made it what the year of the Bible. Remember? And we focused for a couple of years solely on the Bible. We went to work. We did a lot of things that taught you the Bible. And then we talked about the uh, we talked about the uh, uh, the ministries that God gave us, and how that we brought all of these things together. And then a couple of years later, we went up to the next level. We started our prayer groups. We, that we did that for uh, now three or four years, and that really built it. And then, what, this year, when we've come up those levels and we've come up through those things, we now we've started this year that, that we're going to talk about families ministering together. That's going to be what it's about. You Wouldn't you know that when I laid that out that night, I had a couple of people come to me and say, you know what, if you follow that course, we're not coming to this church anymore. Remember what I told you? I told you how that as your kids are little growing up, You can hide all kinds of things that they do. When they're teenagers, you can make excuses for it. But boy, when they get down the road a little bit and they're out there on their own and they do some incredibly stupid things, it gets embarrassing for some people. And to to preach week after week about families ministering together, it it bothers some people. And I had people come up to me, a couple of people come up to me and say, you know what, if you follow that course, we're going to leave the church. We're going to not be here. Now that puts me in a tremendous advantage. I mean, I don't know what to do now. No, don't laugh at me. I don't know what to do. What do I do? The predicament, I find myself. The nice guy that I am, Bob, leader of men, lover of truth, stander of the faith, look like Brad Pitt. Do I cave? Do I give in? I know what I'll do. I'll let all of you young parents in this church just lose your kids. That's what I'll do. Why didn't I think of that? I'll just let you go on and figure it out for yourself. Never say another thing about parents raising their kids right and doing what they need to do. And I'll just let you all lose your kids. Why didn't I think of that? I'll do one better than that. I'll never speak again about your responsibility of winning your child to Christ. And we'll just let all your kids die and go to hell. How would that work? Why? It's all coming to me now. Danny we got about half an hour left. Run down to Walgreens and get me a stack of three-by-five cards. We're going to pass them on at the end. You write down in that card what you don't want me to preach on. And I'll just sidestep all those issues. Why? Yes, that's exactly what we need to do. I see it now. It's clear to me. That's what we'll do. Better yet, we'll just take the word sin out of everything that we do. Your daughter, your son, your mom, your dad, they're no longer sinners. But we got to have something. Oh, I know. They're just morally challenged. <laughs> That'll work. We'll get rid of sin. We'll get rid of everything. Well, we'll never speak anything negative again. We wouldn't want to embarrass anybody. So we'll just take all those negative things out of it. You write down on that card, your pet little sin that you don't want me to talk about. Oh, You don't even have to put your name on it. I guarantee you, I'd put your name on it without a blank card. And I I, I promise you, I'll never preach on those things again. Don't be afraid of their faces. Not everybody loves truth. And a lot of people love truth to the truth smacks them between the eyes and then suddenly they have a problem with truth. These are the rules. This is what you learn. And then the last one, God will put his words in your mouth. I think that's the greatest concept of everything when a man loves God and loves the book and and, and and God loves him. When you stand in that pulpit and you decide you're going to be a pastor, you're going to give your life to God, or you're going to be a preacher, I guarantee you, right out of the chute, brother, God will put the words in your mouth. You just got to have the courage to say them. Now, when those those are the four rules, here's the, here's the four results. We ain't done yet. When you have the four rules of preaching down, then you go to work. And brother, here it comes. Verse 10. See, this day I have set thee over nations and over kingdoms to root out. You know what the job of a pastor is on Sunday morning? Rooting in your life. Some of your teenagers don't like when you keep them honest by going through their room and rooting around their drawers under the bed. I won't say anymore because I don't want to give away my hiding positions when I was a kid growing up that your kid can <laughs> use them against you. <coughs> you how many times, stay out of my room. That's none of your business. In other words, what they're saying is, don't root through my stuff. A lot of God's people that way. They want to come to church on Sunday morning, but they don't want the preacher rooting through their stuff. Well, I ain't rooting through it. What's his job? Root out. You know, there's a lot of parallels between me and a Roto-Rooter man. You ever have the Roto-Rooter man come? Our old house we used to have, we used to have him twice a year. We had trees in all my backyards and and, and he'd run that big old snake down there and he'd pull that thing out. It would be just wound and wound and wound around with a big bottle of roots that kept everything from going down. There's a lot of parallels between you as a preacher and a pastor and a rotor rooter man because you go do a lot of rooting and you both get the same result when you pull the thing out. Now, if you want a verse that goes along with that, it's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, root of bitterness. You got to get, you got to root some things. Then the second thing he says is to destroy. Now that'll be Joshua chapter 7, verse 12. And that's the story of Achan. And the story of Achan is a picture of every Christian who wants to pretend they're a Christian on the outside. But old Aiken boy, he did what God told him not to do. He stole some stuff, and then he went back to his place, and he dug out the tent floor, and he put it in there, and he covered it all over, and then he walked out and pretended like he would do In other words, it's a picture of God's people who have things in their life that they want to hide that maybe the preacher or the pastor knows nothing about, but the Holy Spirit knows it about. So he gets the rotor man and he roots around in your life on Sunday morning, on Thursday night, or whenever you get into the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God comes after you, and the bottom line is that so you'll destroy the accursed thing in your life, like Achan. That's what it is. Then he says the three, and this is where we're at today. This is why I'm telling you this story. He says, throw down. That's cast down imagination, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Then the fourth thing is pull down. That's the strongholds in your life. See, that's what preaching does. When you get a man in the Word of God who will stand for that book and won't be afraid of their faces and put the Word of God out because that's what God's called him to do and not be intimidated by anybody and hold the line uh, to everybody, when that guy gets up to that pulpit and preaches, when you become a pastor someday, that's what you'll do. God will use you. He'll put the words in your mouth. And it will be for one purpose, to root out, for one purpose, to destroy, for one purpose, to throw down and to pull down. And then when you get that done in your life, read the last part of the verse, then you plant and you build. Shall it works? And you know, I stop and think about that. That's almost exactly where most of you have come from in your life here this morning. Almost all of you. All of you. You have to get some things out of your life before anybody can take you and plant and build. That's what Jeremiah was sent to do. God sent Jeremiah, and they hated him. And God will call you to be a pastor and do the same thing and people will hate you. They hated his word so much in chapter 36 of Jeremiah, they burn him up. They hated him so much for what he said in chapter 37, they threw him in jail. And they hated him so much because of the message that he preached in chapter 28, they put ropes under his arms and load him down into a dung pit. God's man. And in the New Testament, God will send you a Jeremiah to stand before you and preach to a people who have lost God and are way with God and to tell you the truth and preach the truth to you so you'll look to yourself and root out and destroy and throw down and pull down the strongholds in your life. Some of you do, some of you don't. Some of you sit here this morning and you sing the famous song, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Some of you don't. Show me instead of counting your blessings, you're counting your sandbags. Count your sandbags, name them one by one. Count your sandbags, see what you have done. Count your sandbags, name them one by one. Arrogancy, pride, stupidity, oh, look what I have done. That's the way it works. Now, last week I gave you two great verses. Philippians 2 5, let this mind be in you because also in Christ Jesus. First Corinthians 2 15. We have the mind of Christ. Now turn back to Ephesians chapter 6. I want to show you another verse that goes along through that. We now see that you get the strongholds pulled down and the imagination fixed by the Jeremiah God has put in your life. You break those things up, you bust those things, you pull them down. Now look at this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Back to the armor. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with fruit and the breastplate of righteousness. See that thing down through there? Now look at verse 4, look at verse 13, look at verse 14. The Christian's job is to stand. See that? think it drives me crazy as I live in a world of cowardly, weak Christians who couldn't stand for anything. That verse says four times, stand, 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 having doth with all to stand. Take your stand, see? Weak people never stand for anything. Weak people who allow strongholds in their life can't stand for anything. You know why? because they're weak, and they can't stand for anything because they fall for everything. Not hard. And you can mark them. You can see them. Now, look at the first thing he says as he lays out the seven pieces of armor. He says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. That truth is the word of God. Now, why loins for a man to stand? Because a man's strength is in his loins, his hips and his legs. Just as in life, a man's physical strength is in his loins, in sports, and all things that he does. The Bible talks about your family before it's ever born. It talks about coming out of a man's loins. That's his strength. And he tells us in his spiritual life, our ability to stand for God will be in, our, in our, our loins girt about. That's wrapped up with truth. All right? Now, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1 and pick it up in verse 11, and I'll show you how this thing plays itself out. Loins girt about with truth, the battle for your mind, root out, pull out, imaginations, every solemn thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto ourselves, but also us, did they minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Here it comes, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, because of what he just said, and all what he just said is about the ministry. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind... See that thing? Lawrence? Gird about with truth. That's your mind. That's your strength. That's the battle. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober to the end for the grace that is he- be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust of your ignorance, but as he hath called you to be holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, man's strength is in his mind. That's the loins that he should have girt about with truth. Verse 13 says, loins girt about with uh, loins of your mind. That's your mind, the Word of God. Verse 14 says, as an obedient children. You follow what God says. Verse 14 says, not fashion yourself according to the former lust. That's not going back to the old things that you did as an unsaved person. And then he says, but he that which hath called you to be holy shall be holy in all manner of conversation. The standards of holiness that God has. And you can justify it, blame it on anybody you want, do whatever you want to do, say what on you say, at the end of the day, it's our choice. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. In this old world, the battle is for your mind. And every person in this room today will take a stand. You'll either take a stand for God, or you'll take a stand in your stronghold. But you'll take one. When your mind is of this world, That mind will produce the attitude that produces the action of the world. When you get God's mind through the Word of God, in that mindset, you produce the right thought pattern, you think like God, and you now have the ability to develop the right attitude that in time will bring about the right action in your life. And then that's the fulfillment of the last verse, verse 5, back to our text today in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. There it is. What a novel idea captive thought process what a novel idea and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ so how do you do that how do you how do you start bringing your thoughts into captivity now I understand totally that it's a process I do understand that but it's an incredible process but I'll tell you how you start you start by making it easy not harder you simply start by keeping the things the people the places the books the TVs, the shows, the movies out of your mind who bring in those ideas and thoughts uh, that develop that mindset. You know, most of you probably have never been to Europe, but Europe is completely amoral, absolutely no morals whatsoever. I told you a while back that there's legislation in Europe right now, because you Europe's kind of a common thing there. There's legislation within Europe right now to allow, uh, make it legal to have people to have sex with animals, bestiality. That's on the book. They want to change that. And uh, no matter where you go in Europe, you see, the, you see the depravity of man because the Word of God has been gone now for several hundred years. And it's an incredible mess. Every, every country has its own mess. We think of New Orleans, you know, and the mess down there. Let me tell you something. New Orleans looked like a Sunday school class compared to some of the places in Europe. In, in Italy, in Rome, it's Pig Alley. In London, it's the Piccadilly Circus or Circle. uh, In Amsterdam, they have the infamous red light district where you can actually walk down in 28 blocks of of, of brothels where the women sit in the windows and uh, and, and display. It's incredible what goes on. You can go down there, and uh, we took tours down there of of all of Amsterdam when we did Europe, and we take people down through there to get them to see what it was like, and there will be places down there where they have live sex acts of men and women on the stage, and the line is lined up all the way down the street. And yet, if I would say to some of you this morning or suggest that we all go to Amsterdam and take our families and go to one of those, you'd have a heart attack. Yet. Yet. Show you how stupid people are. You allow those same things to come into your home through the TV set, through the movies you watch, and your kids sit right there in the middle of it. And you think there's a difference. Crazy. It's crazy. That's how messed up people are. That's why... You, you have the problems you got, and your kids are going to have the problems they got. Now, the first thing you do is remove whoever, remove whatever, remove wherever you go or have in your life that brings you that brings with it the bad thought patterns contrary to God's word. You pull down that stronghold off the throne of God, and you make Christ the Lord of your life and set Him up on the throne. It's as simple as that. That's where you start. You may not be able to fix it all in one day or one week or one month or six months. But you start with what you can fix, and that is taking the things out of your life that don't add to the thought process that is conducive to Christianity. And you take the people out. If you've got people who are, are detriment to your spiritual growth, get them out. If you've got things that are a detriment, get them out. It's that simple. You are a con- alone are control of your mind, and most people just can't do that today. They can't do it because uh, they can't get rid of that stronghold because they're weak. They're cowardly when it comes to the things in their life. Oh, they're big tough guys out on the ball field or they'll dribble the ball down and take the shot and they brag about how great they are, but when it comes to standing for God, they fold up like a broken accordion. Out of control flesh will always be by an out of control mind. And the problem today is is the fact that, that that kind of lifestyle in Christianity is accepted. It's accepted today. It's just, we've lost everything. We've lost everything. Christianity today has totally lost their minds, and the mind that they lost is the Word of God, God's mind. For a Christian, it's never proper to say, you're out of your mind. On the contrary, you're in your mind, the flesh. It's God's mind that you're out of, and that's the problem. You ever notice how many characters in the Bible never bothered to pull down the lifestyle, the stronghold in their life? Cain was faced with a stronghold. You know what his answer was? He left the presence of the Lord. Lot was faced with it. You know what he did? He headed to Sodom. Lot's wife was faced with it. She headed to a pillar of salt. Ishmael was faced with it. He had his shot. He became Israel's enemy. Esau had the same deal. He became Israel's enemy. Ahab had a chance, the wickedest king they ever had, but uh, he wouldn't listen to Micaiah. Jephthah, back there in Judges, the father who killed his own daughter. He had a shot, but his own pride wouldn't let him do it. He killed his daughter just like some of you are killing your kids right now. But nobody's going to help you. Achan, the accursed thing. The Bible's filled with them and how they ended up. But I think the greatest example for all of us today, and I'm closing with this, is Samson. Samson had a stronghold in his life. He had a couple of strongholds in his life. He's a he-man with a she-weakness. And he's a, he's a tough guy. He's like a lot of guys you see today, tough guy. I bet on the basketball court, he, he could just take that ball down and then he was something else. I bet on the baseball field, the football field, all that, thing, he was something else. He was a man's man. He was a coward. He was weak. His stronghold in his life was his life for the Philistines. He loved the Philistines. Philistine type of the world he finally, his first words out of his mouth in the Bible to his own parents is, I saw a woman, go get her for me. I mean, his whole life, he hung out with the Philistines. Picture of the world. They were his buddies. He did everything with them. And at the end of his life, he pulled down the stronghold of his life. Did you ever see it? God gave him his strength to serve God, and he gave that to Delilah. Delilah took it from him. And so then the Philistines, his buddies, the world system, just like so many of God's people love that world system, the world system, the Philistines, his friends at the end, they took him, they stripped him naked, they put out his eyes, and they chained him to a grinding wheel. And he went around in a circle for God knows how many months. The child of God, the aristocracy of heaven, taken by the Philistines, blinded. Now he's grinding for them. Naked, well, they make sport and laugh at him. That's what the world does to you. Samson came to his senses. Too little, too late, afraid, but he finally came to his senses. But by that time, he was chained between the pillars of the great temple of the Philistines. In other words, he was chained to his stronghold. And he finally gets with God, and God says, well, you're in a mess, aren't you? And he says, yes, Lord. He says, I am. He says, boy, you know what? I saved you. I called you to do a job, and look where you're at. You're a disgrace, Samson. He says, Lord, I know it. He says, man, you've given your whole life to harlots. You've given your life to everything, and now you know what? You've never learned the principles that that, that is going to be preached down the line, it's what the Philistines do to you, what the world does to you, what the sins does to you. It's a common thing. Strongholds in your life, they blind you, so they put out his eyes. They, 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 they bind you, so they tied up his hands, and they grind you. They bring you to an end of your life, and there he is, the child of God, chained between two pillars of the Philistines that he partied with, that he loved, and all the things that he did. Now God says, it's time to pull down that stronghold. Well, God gave him his strength he felt that power come back and he reached around them two pillars and he began to crack that where they laughed and made fun and he looked out there at the people he partied with and all the women he'd been with and he wrapped this around that and all the beer and all the dope and all the stuff that he drank and he pulled those things and those arms got the power of God back in him, and he pulled those two central pillars out and his stronghold came crumbling down but he died in the process of suicide. God will bring your stronghold to an end. You get to choose how. Chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, it deals with the mind of the minister. That mind has to be one mind with God's mind. Taking the Bible and learning its principles. Devouring its concepts. Embracing its truth. Seeing and grasp how God views everything and everybody on planet Earth. And then making that your mindset the pattern for your thinking bringing every thought into captivity under the obedience of Christ, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the word of God, listening to the Jeremiah's that God has put in your life, who tell you, who root in your life, who destroy in your life and bring those things that you might get those things out of your life, that though your life can then be fulfilled by God by getting planted in the word of God and growing and being built. You pull down those strongholds in your life by rooting up, by destroying, by casting down and pulling down, taking the things of this old world off your throne of your heart, and putting the Lord back where he needs to be. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Stronghold, mind of the minister.